0: everybody welcome to another comic source comic boom collaboration these are your dc comics for the week of august 31st 2021 i can't believe it's gonna be september man like we're we're approaching the end of the year already this year has flown by it's crazy uh i'm already starting to think about you know best of 2021 episode and i i told myself okay this year whenever i read a book and i think oh i've got to remember this for the best of i'm going to Start the list early, so I don't have to go back through every book I read. Here we are almost in September. I haven't done it. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, it's, it's been a crazy year, man. A, a, a t- a, another year for change for comic books. You know, 2020 was the year of the spec market and dramatic changes. And 2021 just seems to continue the trend with su- Substack and creator-owned and indie and uh, convulsions for, of the big two. And yeah, new, new blood in DC Comics and interesting times.
0: Yeah. For sure. And I, I think that much – I was just reading an article earlier today about how there's still shortages and supply chain is still nowhere near back to normal. Like, for example, Toyota is cutting their output of cars. They're cutting it by 40%. Yeah. So they're only going to make like, – and they already had cut back in 2020 from what they had made in 2019. And now they're saying 2021 – or, or 2022, rather, they're only going to make 60% of the cars they made in in, uh, in 2021. So, yeah, yeah, supply chain continues to be uh, a factor. And the reason I mention that is because we saw recently that DC announced, because of supply chain issues, they have a ton of books that they are having to delay. Yeah, And one of those is Wonder Girl. Now, we talked about Wonder Girl last week not realizing that it had been pushed a week. So it actually comes out this week on the 31st of August. But if you're curious about what our thoughts on wonder girl were, go back and listen. If you go to the the comic boom, YouTube channel, Rocky's got the timestamps there. You can jump right to the wonder girl uh, portion and listen to to what we say. Now, neither one of us were particularly impressed with it. I mentioned how it it already feels like it's taking forever. They've pushed it back several times and it, you know i've talked about it a bunch of times on the show when a comic gets delayed how it loses momentum it loses readership it loses sales so this comic in my mind is already struggling and now it this issue got pushed back a week so it's coming out the last week of august issue 4 is pushed back to the middle of november crazy like 10 weeks from now who is going to care about this wonder girl series By the time that comes out, in my mind, I mean, and I get it. DC, like, this is obviously out of their control. And, you know, based on the fact that Joelle Jones is writing and doing the art, I'm sure it's taking her longer. They should have gave her more lead time, in my mind, because it's already seems like it's taking about six weeks per issue. And then on top of that, now supply chain problems. Um, So, yeah, in my mind, it's the death knell for for this. Plus, didn't the Yara floor... Rumored TV show that got axed, right? So that's yeah. not coming anymore. Well,
1: you got to so- wonder with supply chain issues, though. If if they're gonna at some point, they're gonna have to abandon their same day uh, digital, same day physical release slash digital release. I mean, at some point, if supply chain issues continue to get worse, at some point they might have to release them digitally and maybe just forego the physical whenever the, the supply chain abates.
0: Yeah, you know, they they talked about that, uh, you know, last year when Diamond went on hiatus. And they seemed very reluctant to do that. And that, that was their whole impetus behind leaving uh, Diamond and going with a different distributor. That that was kind of their out. Um, the fact that Diamond wasn't delivering comics that let DC get out of their contract a little early. They seem to not want to do that only because, um, you know, retailers feel that, that really puts them kind of behind the eight ball, right? Like, Hey, it's not fair. If digitally gets released first, it's going to cannibalize our sales. I personally don't believe that is true.
1: It's Uh, not true. I I don't believe it is either.
0: Yeah. But, but you can't convince retailers of that. They a hundred percent believe that because that's what they, that's the same claim that they made when, when DC said, okay, we're going to go on the same day, right? We're going to, we're going to release day and date. Um, and, and comic shops are like, no, no, you, you need to do like you, cause it, it used to be previously, they got a week or two, maybe a month where it was released in print first. And then people went, and were, it was available digitally. Um, but I, I agree with you. And, and here's the other thing about comics, right? Like so many times the complaint we hear about comics right now is they're so expensive. When you talk about removing the printing cost and removing the cost to ship these things and store them and whatnot, like that's a lot more profit. I think you don't need to sell these books for four or five bucks a piece. And I'm not saying you go all digital because there's still a collectability factor. But I mean, we've talked about it a, a ton of times on the podcast. Maybe you go quarterly. Maybe you do something a little bit different. But I, I don't necessarily have the answers. But it wouldn't surprise me, Rocky, if we got there eventually. But I don't I don't think it'll happen anytime soon um, unless there's there's some catastrophic you know, yeah. paper shortage or, or, you know, all the printers uh, around the world get blown up or something like that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, DC already does some stuff that's digital only, or they, they call it digital first because they, they don't want to say digital only because they always want people to think that eventually you'll be able to get it in your hands. And that kind of goes with what we were talking about last time with Substack, where, you know, these creators, they retain the the rights to print these books at some point. And so, yeah, they're delivered to your email box or you go to your Substack uh, account and you sign in and you can read them there and at some point they're going to be printed at what point we don't know and if you're you're curious enough and, and I read almost everything digitally these days it's just because I get my press preview copies digitally you know and I read stuff before it comes out on Wednesday plus if I'm even if it's older stuff I have it on my iPad Comixology Marvel Unlimited whatever it's just easier well, I right? can carry around thousands of comics in my laptop bag on my Big 12.9 inch iPad. It's just so much easier. Um, but there was a time where I, I thought, no, nah, I, I love the feel of the paper more than the feel of the paper. I love the smell. Like when you walk into a comic shop that has a good selection of back issues, it mm. just has that smell. And that's a nostalgic smell for me. So um, I don't know that I would ever stop buying physical comics. As long as physical comics are being printed, I will buy them. Um,
1: Well, I'd really like to know. I'd like to know if, like, for example, I Am Batman uh, was, you know, or uh, the the original uh, Batman Second Son was released digitally first, and then uh, four issues were released. uh, The four-issue miniseries was physically released. I'd be curious to know the sales... Digitally compared to the sales, the physical copies. And they were not released at the same time. And same goes for uh, Infinite uh, Frontier Secret Files. Those six issues were released digitally. Followed by, inf- it, was, it was encapsulated in Infinite Frontier Secret Files. I'd like to know the comparison in sales between those two things. and Because I really question the, uh, and maybe DC has the numbers. Obviously they, they do. But I, I really do question, as you do, the so-called, uh, you know, advisability of, of, you know, I don't know why they're so reluctant to separate the two because it is a, it's a different market. People who read comments digitally, they're, they're a different market than the speculators and by the physical copy buyers. I mean, it's, uh, I'm convinced of that, but I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. You really,
0: you're really talking about three different types of customers. You have the customers that, that only buy stuff digitally. Don't care about the collectability. You could even lump impulse buyers or buying an issue here or there for 99 cents when things go on sale. Then you, you do have the hardcore collectors, the Wednesday warriors that are there every week picking up books. Uh, and that's a completely separate market. They don't read anything digitally. And then you have the hybrid guys like me. I read everything digitally, but I'm buying, you know, it, and not everything is released digitally. So I should say that. Like, bad idea. They don't release any books digitally. So obviously I got to read their books physically. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm, I kind of have a foot in each world so I can, I can see both perspectives. I, I agree with you. Like, I wish we knew digital sales. We never have gotten real true numbers of digital sales. We've gotten some anecdotal evidence here and there, but we've never really been giving, given numbers. In a way, I think digital is a bigger piece internationally than people realize, but I think it's a smaller piece than than the retailers actually think it is. I think, unfortunately, that digital readership is small enough that even if you did release stuff digitally first, that some people would still wait, you know, the extra two weeks or whatever it would be to go and pick it up at the comic shop. Yeah. Um, especially people that have long runs on, on stuff, you know, like, and I, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm hypocritical when it comes to this, because when it comes to my action comics run, as much as I didn't <laughs> like the Brian Michael Bendis, uh, written stories when he was writing action comics, I, you know, I'm trying to literally put together an entire run of that series. And you know, it might be a pipe dream. I I I know I'll never own an Action Comics number 1, but I've got a couple of reprints of it, but even some of those, you know, below 100, anything below 100 super expensive and I I may never own any of those either. Um but I can easily afford each new issue of Action Comics that comes out to continue that run. So, regardless of who's writing it or how bad the stories are, I'm going to buy it because I want to keep that run going even if I'm not reading it or I'm just reading it digitally, so. No. Anyway, that's more than enough uh, about digital and, and Wonder Girl. And again, I just wonder how much that, I mean, two and a half months between issues. That's just insane. And it's yeah. not like it's some crazy, like, doomsday clock, right? Where it's the sales juggernaut where people are going to show up for it. By the mid November, people are going to have, have forgotten. You and I probably won't even remember what the hell happened in Wonder Girl number three yeah. or four or whatever it is that's out this week. So yeah.
1: it's unfortunate. Uh,
0: yeah. So anyway, let's uh, start with the first book. A lot of annuals this week, which is kind of strange for, uh, well, I guess it is and it isn't. A lot of times when there's the, the last week of the uh, last Wednesday of the month, that's what they'll do, uh, especially if it's an extra Wednesday, um, or in this case, an extra Tuesday. Uh, and this is the fifth Tuesday of the month uh, of August. So, um, you know, most things are on a, a four week cycle, but. Given the the rest of the creative team a little bit of a, a break and, and the ability to get caught up. So uh, first thing that we're starting off with is Midnighter Annual 2021. I don't know why they just call it Midnighter Special. I don't. How do you have an annual when you don't have a regular series going on? Obviously, the backup um, in Action Comics is is what this story can uh, in this issue concludes. Uh, so it's written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, and this goes all the way back to Future State. Superman World of War, uh, when the, uh, this story started with Midnighter and Andrew Chojin and uh, Mr. Miracle and whatnot. So Michael Avon Omi is still the artist, as he has been throughout. I was kind of hoping we get a different artist for this last, um, this last chapter, but unfortunately we, we haven't. Taki Soma is the colorist. Dave Sharp does letters. And the only reason I say that about Michael Avon omi's art is, you know, I'm starting to sound like a broken record, I'm sure, but... Uh, I just don't think he draws superhero action that well. Uh, His storytelling is fine um, from panel to panel. Uh, He definitely has a very stylized um, sense when it comes to anatomy. If if you're familiar with his art at all, you'll know that this is not like anatomically correct and the proportions and whatnot are are not exactly right. Um, He exaggerates things for uh, effect. And, you know, I don't mind his sense of storytelling. I think he has a, a very good sense of storytelling actually, but, Uh, his style is just not a style that's ever really uh, resonated with me. All that being said, um, I thought that getting a, and maybe it's because we get such a big chunk of story here, but getting a big chunk of story to, to conclude the uh, Midnighter story and, and close that time loop and actually allow Midnighter to break out of that time loop so that the future is uncertain. And that possible future that we saw in future state may not come to pass. Um, And that's not a big surprise because we've always been told future states, but a possible future or a potential future. So all that worked really well for me. Um, And I, you know, I I thought it was okay. It it ended up being a story that while I probably won't go back and reread it, uh, I think it in the end, it (laughs) ends up making sense. Now, again, if this, if this was drawn by somebody whose art I really enjoyed, I think I would go back and reread it in one sitting to kind of get a, a better feel uh, and a better understanding of exactly what went down. Um, but again, that Avon Oming art is just not a, an art style that I'm, I'm, that really speaks to me. So again, I thought it made sense in the end. Um, the argument could be made that it doesn't, the story doesn't really end um, because again, we break out of that loop <laughs> But the way the the story ends with uh Andrew Trojan and his uh his assistant, who's basically housing his his consciousness at this point, it, it definitely leaves the story open for, for more to come. Um but I gotta be honest, I hope there isn't any more because uh, I probably wouldn't read it anyway. So anyway, what did you think, Rocky? Do you think it it made sense in the end? Um,
1: well uh I mean, straight up. Well, well, first of all, I've been, we've been reviewing every issue. So does it make sense to us? Kind of, sort of. Yeah, sure. I had to read it multiple times again. Uh, let me just, uh, I, I'm not trying to avoid your question. It's a, it's a seemingly simple question. Does this story make sense? And while sure, I mean, in the sense that it's a, it's a time paradox. I generally love time travel tales, but you know, it actually occurred to me for the first time that reading this annual, we finally get to this annual. And by the way, the title of this issue isn't revealed until page 22. This is a four, there's 42 pages in this comic. You have to get to page 22 before you finally get what the title of this issue is. So you can tell that I think that they intended this to be two separate issues or an, or, or they must have, I think at one time intended for this to be a, a series of another two backups. But I, I got the strong sense that they're cramming all this into this annual just to put this out of its misery. But, that's me. That's me pretending I'm I'm Mr. Editor. But in any event, this reminded me a little bit of Groundhog Day. But uh, actually, it's definitely not Groundhog Day. This is Midnighter, who's who's trapped in a bootstrap paradox because what happened in Future State is that he just he basically wants to stop Andrew Trojan, who he knows for we know from in Future State. He is going to ultimately become like an a, this all-powerful this 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 basically living computer who abandons his humanity, and so Midnighter sends his future consciousness into the past, and so Midnighter's future consciousness is occupying his present body. Meanwhile, the future consciousness of of Adrian Trojan, Adrian Trojan, is occupying uh, Midnighter's mind in the past as well, and. You know, there's some good there's some good attempts here at what where a story could lie because Midnighter never opened up with Apollo. uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad they do their best to try to create a you know to build on the relationship between Midnighter and Apollo and the fact that Midnighter and Apollo Midnighter doesn't doesn't confide in Apollo and tell him that he's got this other supervillains. Sharing his mind with a supervillain from the future, and he doesn't share with Apollo that he's actually not his present self. The present Midnighter is actually trapped in the future. I mean, it's it's crazy, and we never, you know, we we never got a sense. I mean, it was revealed here that Midnighter doesn't want to tell Apollo that because in every in every time he's relived this this timeline, Midnighter says that in every timeline when he when he opens up to Apollo and tells Apollo the truth that they end up failing they end up losing and it actually there's some good character moments here and unfortunately uh you know I'll be very blunt i didn't need any of the previous backup stories this could have this could have, it could have all been just had this been structured and paced better this sole this one annual could have told the entire story in my mind it really could have and it could have been yeah, done frankly right. what's that
0: I said, yeah, you're right. 100%. I
1: agree. Uh, Because this is, this is, I read this annual and all of a sudden a couple of light bulbs went off my head. Oh, well, that's what this is. It never really occurred to me that this was, that, that Midnighter had relived this multiple times. This is a bootstrap paradox. I understood that he's, that he's doing this all for the first time, but apparently he's lived this more than once. That's news to me. I never got that impression in previous issues, but hey, I guess it is what it is. But in any event, it actually gets near the end here. Adrian Trojan ends up there. There ends up being three people occupying the mind of Midnighter: the present and future Andre Trojan, as well as Midnighter's uh, future self, all in all, in Midnighter's body. Midnighter ends up being sent back to the future. So the future Midnighter, the consciousness, the future consciousness, is in present Midnighter, who's sent back into the future, where he's got both Andre, the past and present. Andre Trojan's consciousness trapped in his mind. And then he kills himself in the future. And you think, well, okay, the bad guy's done. Andre Trojan. The present consciousness of Andre Trojan and the future consciousness of Andre Trojan are killed by future Midnighter because future Midnighter kills himself. But then it's revealed at the end, like you said, that, well, uh, I guess the backup plan that Andre Trojan has been bragging that he had even in the event that he lost comes to fruition, and Andre Trojan's minions, another one of his helpers, actually must have made a copy of Andre Trojan's two consciousness two minds, and he's still alive. So therefore, I I, I believe fully that Midnighter lost. Andre, Andre Trojan is still alive. The future state can still happen because Andre Trojan is still alive. We've come all this way only for it to be discovered that Midnighter, in fact, lost period. He just plain lost. He was outsmarted by Andre Trojan. And I I got to, you know, I got to tell you, like, I, I agree with you about the art. I'm not going to sit here and, and continue to say, you know, I'll just say that uh, Michael Von Van Oming, this this isn't his, this isn't the right series for him. This, this did not work. This was the wrong combination of writer and artist. It did not work. And the pacing and the structure of this story was just off from the beginning, and this just doesn't work. I'm just glad this story is over, and I don't ever I I don't want this to be referred to at the end. Of all the stories for Future State that we reviewed, I'm generally positive on all of them. I think DC's done a good job. Future State was hit and miss, but all the stories leading into Future State, from Marika Tamaki to uh to uh, Tinian's uh, The Magistrate, to, to to Suicide Squad, to Teen Titans Academy. All those stories are taking shape nicely moving into Future State. But except for this one, even the Superman, Philip Kennedy Johnson. I mean, that's we're moving toward War World. But this, this one has been, I think, a significant miss. And this is, it doesn't bode well for this. So I would prefer just to forget, forget this. But
0: There yeah, you have here's, it. Here's, here's the thing. Up until this annual, I would have, have said that i agree with that like it's been a mess it doesn't need to exist it should be erased it hasn't worked but like you said in this annual and again maybe it goes to the fact that we got such a huge chunk of story in this annual to me it finally came together to the point that there's interesting concepts here and if it were done correctly i i i am curious and i'm more curious about Sort of the the relationship. I, I think the best part of the story was the interaction between the Shiloh Norman, Mister Miracle, and yeah. uh, and Midnighter. So that would be more of what I would want to see. I could really care less about the Apollo Midnighter thing. That's never interested in me. But the number one thing you'd have to have, I think, is just a different artist because to me, that's that's the part that I just it. I, it's a chore to read because I don't care for the art. Um, so and and maybe the maybe it's just goes to what a great job. Fico Osio and Brandon Easton and the creative team for Mr. Miracle source of freedom have done that that's the part of the story. All of a sudden I'm this huge Shiloh Norman fan, you know, and I want more uh, stories with him. So maybe that's it. Uh, All right, well, let's move on. Uh, Next book. We're going to talk about, this is a big one. It's one, a lot of people have been waiting for. I've had mixed feelings about the fact that there's another big event starting feels like we just finished Joker war and now we have fear state. Uh, so fear state alpha is out this week it kicks off the fear state event it's written by james tynan the art is by ricardo federici uh or federici italian artist mostly known for his cover work at dc and uh i thought his art it blew me away like his his cover work is so good but they're static images and a lot of times when you, you try to make that transition maybe the storytelling isn't as good Maybe, you know, from panel to panel, things can get lost. I was very impressed. I I don't think I've ever seen him do any interior work, at least not in a comic that I've read. So while I was going through and reading this, I I didn't realize it was him. Um, And I I probably should have, just based on the line work uh, and sort of the cross-hatching and textures that he gives us. But when I got to the credits page and I saw it was him, I was I was very impressed. So I thought that was done very, very well. The colors by Chris Sotomayor. Uh, letters are by Clayton Cowles. So, you know, I've talked at length about how I'm sort of tired of fascist villains. I'm not a fan of The Magistrate as uh, this villain group. Wasn't a big fan. Didn't enjoy The Magistrate story uh, in Future State as much as, as Rocky did. And, again, I just kept going back to here we are. We just finished Joker War and now we're getting another big event. And I think I said either uh, last week or the week before, why the hell would anybody live in Gotham? At this point, you've got to be insane or like a masochist to live in Gotham. But tying into his credit, he actually sort of addresses that. And it, it's it's exactly because Gotham is the way it is and because it just had this traumatic event with Joker War that... Now this fear state is happening. You know, um, Simon Saint, he just wants power. We know he's somewhat of a mustache twirling villain. He just wants power and and he's recruiting Jonathan Crane to basically level up Gotham City, right? Like the whole theory is, well, look at what Bruce Wayne had to overcome. Look at the fear and the trauma in his childhood and look how it purified him and allowed him to evolve into Batman. Let's take that same principle and apply it to an entire city, that's uh that's Simon Sait's thinking, right? Like the way you fix Gotham, Crucible by Fire, as it were. Now Tynan's always been a giant Scarecrow fan and thinks that Scarecrow needs to be leveled up in terms of uh being a more powerful villain. He feels like he's never really gotten his due. Think of people like Joker in the last twenty years, let's say, who've who've really leveled up in power and become a you know more dangerous threat. Uh Scott Snyder did it with the Riddler in um, in Year Zero, Batman yeah. the Year Zero, and Tom King kind of added to that in the War of Jokes and Riddles. And Riddler's now much more, um, he's, he's a much bigger threat than he used to be, right? Where he it was just kind of a gimmick, and felt like it was much more the Riddler from um, sort of the Batman TV show. Uh, Riddler's a, a, an A-level threat now. Titans bringing the Penguin back, right, to that higher level instead of just being this corrupt casino owner. Well, he's doing the same thing with Scarecrow. He thinks Scarecrow should be – and maybe it goes back to Tynan's love of horror. In my mind that Scarecrow is one of the more sort of horror-centric, especially with the way um, Jorge Jimenez has been, been drawing him lately and, and the way that uh, Tynan portrays him. So, yeah, I, I could see it. I've never been you know, a big Scarecrow fan. I could kind of take him or leave him. Um, but everything that's happening in here in Fear State is making sense. And the other thing that I really, really enjoyed, beyond the art and the colors, which again are absolutely fantastic, like I, I and maybe it's because uh Ricardo federici is is slow, maybe that's why he does just covers. man if he can give us one or two books like this a year, I'd be happy with that. This man needs to be doing some interiors though. Do something beyond just the covers. He's not an artist that I buy every cover, but I do buy you know a few here or there that I, I really enjoy, um, yeah. but man, if this is the talent the guy can bring to interiors, because the thing that is most impressive to me about his art is how emotionally impactful it is, especially in the scene between Simon Saint and, uh, and Jonathan Crane inside uh, Arkham Asylum, because this is a flashback before A-Day and all that. It's just so impactful. There's so much emotion there and you feel it. The other thing that Tynan does really, really well in this issue is this is the setup issue, right? This is the bookend. We're getting Fear State Alpha, and then at the end, we'll get Fear State Omega. Those are the two issues that, you know, uh, officially kick off the event and then end the event. So we know it's going. they're going to play throughout all the Batman titles. So Batman, Catwoman, Nightwing, um, Detective Comics. So there's a lot of uh, Harley Quinn. So there's a lot of different moving parts. There's a lot of different aspects to the story. We've seen some house ads in the last couple of weeks where Tynan has talked about, okay, this is sort of the, the portion of the story that's going to happen in Harley Quinn with Poison Ivy. Here's the portion that's going to happen in Nightwing with uh, the Anti-Oracle and whatnot. And so you know, different, uh, different titles in the Bat family are going to cover different portions of the story. But for these bookend titles, it's got to be everything. We've got to get a little taste of each storyline. And when you do that in one of these kind of bookend uh, issues that that start and end series, it can feel disjointed. It can feel like it's not paced really well because you're getting little chunks, the beginnings in this case, of a lot of different disparate storylines. Tynan makes it all happen seamlessly. It all makes sense. It all comes from one seed, uh, Simon Saint and um, uh, the Peacemaker Zero-One. Being sort of you know out of his mind with fear toxin and um, all that, I think sort of sets up really really well. This is one of the best sort of bookend starts to um, one of these kind of events that I that I've seen in a long time. Um, you know the parts with Sean Mahoney Peacekeeper One done really really well. We get our first look at anti Oracle that interaction between Simon Saint and Jonathan Crane. Like I mentioned. We see Batman sort of in the clutches of, of Scarecrow. So I thought all of that, the setup, it is, it is very much a setup issue, but it's all set up just very, very well. Everything you need to know is right here. If you if you haven't been reading any Batman since, I don't know, way back when Tom King was writing it or Scott Snyder or whoever, um, you can pick this up. You can pick up Fear State Alpha and just read this, and Tynan tells you everything you need to know so you can dive into fear state if you so choose to, uh, you know, join this event um, as as fall is getting underway and Halloween is around the corner, um, and and see what's happening in uh, in Gotham City. So these aren't easy issues to write in my mind because you are having to basically start a bunch of storylines, kick off a bunch of different storylines for for the various Bat titles. But I thought he did an excellent job. I was so impressed with this. Um, I'm actually looking forward somewhat to, uh, to fear state now I'm I'm not over the moon, excited for it by any means. Um, but I was sort of dreading it, you know, I was like, I feel like I just finished Joker war. Now we got this other giant event and I'm just sort of tired of it. I don't feel that way anymore. I'm curious. I'm, I'm in, I want to see what, what happens. I want to see how these storylines play out. So, uh, I got to give Tynan a, a ton of credit uh and and uh, ricardo federici uh federici rather and uh and chris sotomayor on the colors i think everybody in this issue did a, a fantastic job i was very very impressed with this issue uh what did you think rocky uh
1: yeah i'm uh, i like it uh, it was uh, really good i i apologize for those people who are watching i'm just having some yeah i'm just having some issues here
0: i um yeah. Usually you're able to flip through
1: the, the pages. Well, yeah. And it's, uh, for some reason, unfortunately, that's not what's, uh, it's not what's happening here. I don't know why. Um, in any event, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Uh, in any event. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I appreciate, uh, all your comments make, uh, make complete sense to me. it, it One of the things that uh, I love the entire premise of the fact that focusing on fear, you know, the fact that pushing pushing Gotham to it's just like Batman overcomes fear and he becomes a better Batman because of it. You know, Scarecrow, almost like, you know, Dr. Jonathan Crane takes credit for how great Batman is. And, you know, it makes sense. I, I like the thought that Tinian put into this, that Dr. Jonathan Crane is more of a genius than he's given credit for. He's put far more thought into fear and the the idea of a fear state than I think a lot of people would would normally give him credit for. And I really like like you said at the beginning when 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 Simon when when Simon Saint actually approaches him, and uh yeah no it's unfortunately it's not working but uh yeah I don't know um. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave it here. It's not, not working, but um sorry I'm just losing my focus a little bit here. But I I, I love like you said, when with, with the focus and the psychology of the fear state and how Simon Sain approaches Dr. Jonathan Crane, how they incorporate the insanity collective, how they how they are creating fear, and it's got nothing to do with fear toxin, but it's about heightening the fear to such a to such a state naturally, naturally enhancing that fear and then dropping the bomb of the toxin, of the scarecrow toxin. It's like, it's like, boom, let, let nature take its course. Let fear be that natural mind killer and then have everything drop. And like you said, how everything seamlessly flows into future state now, uh, you know, it's like you and I, we've said it before how future state almost was it's it's a it's almost a curse as opposed to a blessing in disguise because what Future State did is that it dropped it it, it just seemed to drop too many bombs right away and we didn't need it. I, I would almost have preferred if all this would have been a natural organic build up to Future State, this might have been a better story, but I I'm still enjoying it. It's just it's just a little bit odd how they did it. I, I hope DC never does this again, having a future state where they where they drop a bunch of revelations and then we go back into the past and then build up the future state. I, I I prefer. I wish they would not have done that. I would have. I would have preferred this been organically developed. Having said that, I am enjoying the journey. I'm enjoying the ride. I like. Uh, like I said, I like how things are going here. And um, like. And there's so many moving parts. Like you said, so many moving parts with Alleytown, Town, Catwoman, with Ghostmaker, with with Harley Quinn, with with Poison Ivy, with. Uh, all this is a rich tapestry multiple characters across multiple titles and we got we got we got writers at the top of their game here we got Tinian on Batman we got Tamaki on Detective who's kicking ass we've got uh, Stephanie Phillips on uh, Harley Quinn which I think you know she's you know doing an admirable job there we got Ram V on Catwoman and all these all these narratives seem to be syncing relatively well I think Harley's a little bit out of whack there a little bit, if I'm being brutally honest. But, but even that, uh, I'm 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 happy where I'm happy with this where this is. This is I'm gonna miss Tinian. I really am. I'm gonna I'm really gonna miss him. James uh, Joshua Williamson has some pretty big shoes to fill come November.
0: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. The other two books uh, you didn't mention, John Ridley on uh, the next Batman, also a very talented writer, and then of course Tom right. Taylor on Nightwing that ties in as well. Um and yeah, I, one of those things that I that I forgot to mention, I'm glad you brought it up. One of the best parts about the scene with Jonathan Crane and Simon Saint when uh Crane is basically giving giving his price, like yes Simon Saint, I will help you out. I will help establish a a fear state in Gotham City. Um you know, I want uh you know, 25 million dollars or whatever it is and and you know, a great lab and and you know, chemicals and and my costume back. Uh, but the most important thing that I want is I want credit, right? He wants yeah. credit. He feels like he's never been given his due. So that's very telling. Uh, and I think a perfect way for Tynan to to level up Jonathan Crane. Because I, I do feel like he's always been second rate or maybe even third rate villain in the comics. I feel like the most malevolent sort of successful Jonathan Crane ever was it, actually in the Batman Begins movie. Um where he's, uh, you know, feels like much more of a threat than he ever did in the, in the comics. So, uh, All right. Well, up, on to the next book. It's uh, Static, Season 1, Episode number 3, uh, written by Vita Ayala. We have Pencils, Inks, and Colors by Nicholas Draper-Ivy on pages 1 through 12. And then we have Pencils and Inks by Chris Cross on pages 13 through 20. And the Colors on 13 through 20 are by Will uh, Quintana. Letters throughout are by Anne World design, so bit of a different look to the book um, than we've had so far, and I'm I don't know that that it worked as well for me, but uh, but what did you think of this issue, Rocky? Uh
1: can can you see can you see me flip through the pages here?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's working.
1: You, it's working. Okay. Yep. Uh, yeah, I I thought this was I, this is getting a little bit uh, derivative uh, for me. It's a little bit kind of predictable, but. Uh, you know overall the story it's it's not bad it's it feels a little bit derivative because we got the we got sort of like I mean all these uh, all these students that got their powers from the big bang because there was this, there was this protest the school there was a protest on the street and it became known as the big bang and there was this corporation that used some sort of secret sort of gas that, to break up the the protest and it resulted in a lot of the people the chi- a lot of the teenagers at the protest gained superpowers of course static was one of them and a lot of his friends gained powers as well including his his arch nemesis and ultimately one of the students here decides to betray the rest of them and and, and turn in the other students who gained their powers from like from the big bang and so it's it's building up with something uh, it's building up to something big clearly I think where the strengths of this issue lie that I think really resonate for me was the relationship between Static and his father. And, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot about, and of course, this isn't, you know... What do I know about the African American community in the United States? I just know what i what i 'm told and what I see on on social media, but I know there 's a lot of talk about there 's not enough father figures in in the lives of a lot of uh, young black men and it 's really great to see this you know this is this is a a character with strong family values raised by a really great family, and his relationship with his father really comes to the forefront here how it, and it's you really see how it, it it makes it makes the lead character that much more interesting and Uh, A fairly, you know, he's, you can tell his upbringing is very different than a lot of his, uh, than a lot of his uh, classmates. And in particular, it it does fly over into the, into the other character, uh, Hardware, and who, who gave him the whereabouts of his secret hideout. And uh, because at the beginning of this issue, the police are looking for, uh, or actually, they think they're, 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 I think it's Metcalf is the character's name, Uh, but in any event, that the character that plays uh, Metc or uh, Hardware, he gave uh, Static the location of his sort of like a secret headquarters, and and uh, the, the police are are you know they he he has to escape the police, and ultimately he does make it back home, and he ends up with you know there's there's uh, we're we're learning a little bit more about the power set of Static. How he can manipulate liquid metal, and it's—I'm a little bit—I'm still trying to get a handle on exactly what Static's powers are. And um, he seems uh, to—he seems to be able to uh, manipulate liquid metal in response to his energy. He calls it kinetic metal. So I I like that. I'm learning a little bit more about Static's powers because you know I'm ignorant. This is—I'm just getting to know Static here. I was—I didn't read his series back in '96 or in the in the New Fifty Two. He had a series. I never really read it, to be quite blunt, so I'm, I'm getting to know him for the first time here, and, and I'm really enjoying it. The art here is uh, fantastic. I found it a little bit funny that Static is doing his own sewing. He's got sewing skills. I thought that was kind of comical. <laughs> and the fact that he actually does a pretty good job on his own just... <laughs> coming up with his own costume, and it wasn't his mother that did it, it was himself, so that, I thought that was kind of comical. There were some nice character moments here, again, great, great character moments with his dad, and, you know, we're really starting to, you know, you know, I like his dad, he's, he's a cool guy, and, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's refreshing to see, you know, that we're not seeing a bunch of dysfunction here. This is a good, high-functioning, good kid who was raised right, and, um, you know, finally, the the problems don't come from this kid's uh, upbringing. It comes from, of course, uh, Static's friends and what have you. And he's even got good friends that confront him this issue and apologize to him and say that they're there to support him. So this is actually a feel-good issue. I really liked it. I thought they did a. I I think uh, Vida Ayala does a pretty good job here scripting this. And at the end, we have this organization that uh, is uh, working with, I forget this, what's this villain's name? Do you remember this villain's name?
0: Is, uh, I want to say like hot stuff or hot
1: streak like, or something or heat,
0: stre- heat stroke, heat, heat stroke. <laughs> yeah,
1: I don't know, but some, he's kind some, of a, kind of I a jerk.
0: <laughs> oh, he's a huge jerk. Hot streak. I think hot streak. Yeah. Look, yeah. If you look at the blurb for next issue, hot streak makes a house call again. Yeah. Hot streak. Yeah. he's I mean, I guess when it comes to villains, you know, you're doing a good job when they engender a reaction. Yeah, and I I I want to see this guy get his ass whooped. To be honest <laughs> with you, he he's a he's a punk ass, like yeah, total scumbag, total scumbag, and you just want to see him get his come up and. So, you know, yeah. I don't like him at, at all, but you know that that's it's in a good way, right? Uh, yeah,
1: Well, he almost killed the family too. That's what I can understand why they don't press charges against him. And he practically almost killed the entire family by burning them to death, their house and everything and, and how they yeah. just sort of allow and be at school. It not, it's, there's some, it, I think in that respect, maybe it lacks a little bit of verisimilitude. I find that very, very hard to believe that this, that this, like you say, I mean, calling him a punk, you're right. He is, he's evil. And, uh and he did, he didn't, it was more than just random vandalism in the previous issues. He, he literally tried to burn the house down, burn the, kill the, burn the family to death. So this isn't like a, a bully at school. This is something far more serious. And it just, it, it is rather extraordinary, uh, what he's managed to get away with. And now he's, Obviously, this corporation has a lot of power over the police. There's a lot of corruption here, the fact that they can get away with this, uh, which just raises the stakes for our lead character. I'm really curious how he's going to get out of this because it's, it looks like that, that corporation that, uh, that's trying to gather all the, the, the teenagers that gain powers from the Big Bang protest. it looks like they're really pulling their weight and they have a lot of power here. So it's going to be interesting to see where this story mo- goes moving
0: forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it it slowed down a little bit, um, for me in terms of, of pacing in exchange for more character work in this issue, especially the scene between uh Virgil and his dad between Static and his dad um on on the roof, which I thought resonated and, and was really, really good. Um, we also get a couple of scenes of um of Virgil's classmates and uh and that all works really well also. Uh so I, I expect probably more action next issue with what Hot Streak has done here and, and like I said, I I hope that Hot Streak isn't being set up to be like the the nemesis of uh of static, right? Where he comes back time and time again and he never really gets punished. Like yeah. I, I would like to see this guy be put away for a long, long time be stripped of his powers. I mean, I really want to see him get what he's, he's due. Well, He
1: just seems uh, just, like a punk. He doesn't really seem okay. all that well developed. Like he's not a villain that you I'm um, sympathetic with. He's just genuinely yeah, a
0: punk. Uh, yeah. Like, because he's not, he's not, he doesn't have any level of intelligence, you yeah. know, he's just sort of conniving. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I hope he's not around long. Um, I hope he, 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 you know, he serves kind of as a plot device for Virgil to sort of learn how to use his powers as, as static. Um, so all in all, a, a good solid issue. Uh, like I said, I expect more action next issue. As far as the art goes, it didn't work for me as well as um, as the first couple of issues, where uh, Crisscross was doing layouts and then uh, Draper Ivy was was finishing those off and doing the color work. I thought that worked better because um, what ended up happening here is the the first half of the book, the art feels a little more soft with the way Draper Ivy you know work who who works digitally as opposed to crisscross who's probably more of um a traditional uh artist although it does look like he's working digitally now now as well but he's been around a lot longer but the art it doesn't it's not a seamless transition from one artist to the other um especially when you look at things like panel borders um and line weights uh Those are are really where the art looks very, very different. So I prefer when they kind of collaborate together um, or go with Nicholas or go with Crisscross. Cross. Either one. They're both exceptional artists. I enjoy both of their styles. Um, And I, I think the melding of the style like they did in issue one and issue two worked really, really well. So if I had my choice, we'd go with that. If not, just give the book to one or the other. Um, I hope they don't continue to to split it up this way. And it's not to say it's terrible, but again, it, it they are different styles. They're they're different enough that it doesn't necessarily flow seamlessly from um, from one to the other. And I and I you know I guess they did sort of try to split it up in that the first half of the book is when Virgil is static, and the second half of the book is when he's out of costume. So uh, I suppose they that's why they split it up that way. Um, so could that work going forward? Eh, I mean, I guess it could, but again, I would prefer one artist or the other, um, just to have it, have the art have a more consistent look. So, but that's just a personal preference. It it's not, wouldn't be a deal breaker for me because I I'm enjoying the book enough. I'd, I'd keep reading it even if that wasn't the case. Uh, all right. Up next team Titans Academy, number six, summer break from writer, Tim Sheridan, Rafa Sandoval handles the pencils. Jordi Tarragona on the inks, Ulysses Ariel on the colors, and Rob Lee on letters. Um, and this is the start of a brand new arc, which is it doesn't really call back to anything we've seen in this series so far. Which in a way is a little bit frustrating because we have so many storylines, so many plot threads going on. It would be nice to get some headway on some of those, but instead we're thrown into into a brand new story, brand new adventure, so what are your thoughts on this one, Rock? I
1: I actually think that this was uh this is actually a storyline that f- I hate to say this but I, I I found myself wondering who all the characters were again because I forgot who they were. And uh I think I'll take responsibility for uh for my memory being bad, but I I, I actually wish that there was a s there was a, a summary page at the beginning. To basically indicate uh, who all the characters were, because I was actually fairly uh, frustrated. Uh, I'll ask again: Can can you see me flip the pages? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This this is uh, basically this reminds me a lot of early X Men comics in a way. This is the teen the, the students of Teen Titans Academy are 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 going to a place. This is this is during their summer break. And they're going to basically a place, um, uh, I, I, I can't even remember what it's called. Uh, it's, uh, they're going to, oh, to a place called Beach Pond, which is a safe haven for metahumans. And apparently this is a place where metahumans have, c- c- can go to feel safe and feel not judged and get away from the normal populace. So right away there's, that's a, that's an illusion. I think that reminds me a lot of the, the X-Men. And and I really think it's, Maybe it's a little bit heavy handed, but that that's fine. I mean, clearly a writer, Tim Sheridan, I think is trying to convey that, that these students, they want to go to a place where they feel, uh, where they feel that they can maybe just maybe be themselves and, and get away from things. But, and I guess I can see that because none of, none, none of these kids, all of these kids definitely look different. I mean, we got, we got Greg Grodd here. We got. I don't know. We got another kid that, that you know. We got Chucacabra, We got, we got uh, 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 I guess, the Megabat, and and we've got uh, Summer, who's got like frost powers, and we've uh, we've got all these characters we're still getting to know. And when uh, they end up wandering into the town of East, East Nayak or East East Nayak. And it's and they discover that the town is almost deserted. And they ultimately discover that all the people in the town uh, ostracize them when they finally find them. And the people of the town apparently are being m- mentally manipulated by uh, Gorilla Grodd. And uh, where I think Tim Sheridan tries his best to shine here is in the interactions between all the students, between Stitch, between Greg Grod, between Chucocabra, between Summer, between uh, all the characters. And I think where uh, I think where this this could be better is if I, I wish it was more apparent who these again, I say who these characters are. <laughs> it's a lot of these characters, you really got to read it tight to even get who their names are. I mean, other than Stitch and and Gr- uh, Greg and, and, and Gorilla Greg and 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 Summer, it's I would have liked this. Really needed a page, I think, at the beginning to to just say who all these characters are. These are this is not the Teen Titans, okay? This is not the traditional. This isn't Starfire, Dick Grayson, uh, Changeling, uh, Cyborg. This isn't that at all. These are brand new characters that we're not familiar with, and I think a little bit more care should have been taken to show that. I mean, this is a very cliche show. You know, I mean, literally, this is a town where. I mean, this is the 21st century. What are the odds that a town is that everyone's going to have pitchforks? I mean, this just seems really, really odd. I mean, Gorilla Grodd ends up in this small East Nayak town near a lake, and he he equips all the people with pitchforks, and they go after these students that are there on holidays, and they're they're actually in this town to avoid being judged and to avoid. And then here they are, and that's. And the very opposite thing happens in terms of what they're actually there to do, and that is have a holiday. Again, um, it's very tropey, but, you know, it does have some character moments. There's uh, probably the most significant one, I suppose, from a character uh, motivation point of view is there's uh, some flirting going on between Twitch and uh, Cabra, which I'm not even sure how you'd characterize it. Twitch is non-binary, Cabra is... I don't know what he is, sort of like a vampire sort of creature. It's really, really odd. Um, But I, I guess, I don't know. I just, these characters are kind of likable to me, but at the same time, I I feel that this is a story that is maybe a, ahead of its time and that it, it's, it's a little bit too soon. I don't feel I know these characters enough that we should be getting a story like this. To be honest, I feel like I want to get to know these characters more before I go on vacation with them. I, I, I just feel this story, the timing of this story is wrong, but maybe in maybe I'm just being foolish and maybe I'm just insulting the intelligence of uh, most readers because I know when I was younger, I, I was, I was up for that challenge, but, uh, for here, the art here is fantastic. Rafa Sandoval' art's fantastic. The inking by Jordi Tarragona is great. Uh, the coloring's beautiful by Ulysses Ariola. Rob Lee on the lettering. This is really good stuff. You get a sense of the ambiance of the town, the, the darkness. Uh, uh, you get a sense that this is, it almost reminds me like they're in a small town and they're, it's like, it's almost like a horror movie. You're watching, you know, summer kids go on vacation. You know, I know what you did last summer, uh, Teen Titans style. And, you know, again, so I had fun. I just, um, you know, I'm just wondering if it's, if it's going to be for everybody. And, and maybe it just, maybe it was the mood I was in when I was reading it, but, uh, um, uh, these characters are likable. I just, I, I just wish I knew them a little bit more before we got this, uh, before we got this kind of story, but, uh, um, Hey man, we're going to get some gorilla grad. So, uh, how did it hit you, uh, Chase?
0: yeah i mean you 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 had the exact same reaction that that I did right like we've been talking about Teen Titans Academy and its potential right from the beginning, but then it was Red X, and then it was a suicide squad crossover, and now it's them outside of the tower, outside of school, on a camping trip. you gotta establish a baseline first, like you said we we gotta be introduced to these characters we gotta get a chance to to see them in the Academy environment and to to learn who they are and to care about them and become invested in the characters. And then you can take them out and do this kind of story. Again, I I agree with you. I think it's way too early and it ends up feeling like I don't have a foundation yet, but we're out there already building the house. I think it has potential. Like you said, the characters are likable. I wish I didn't know more about them. I wish we hadn't got so much red X or, or we hadn't gotten, um, maybe the suicide squad crossover and we just got some stories of the, these characters just going to class and getting to know each other um i sort of think back to a lot of what was done uh, across the street at, at marvel during the age of x-men when that they, they had their school established um and and they had a couple of those series that did a very good job of letting you know who those characters were in that setting uh, we saw them in the classroom we saw them in the cafeteria uh, we saw them in their dorm rooms and it really gave you a sense of, of who they were in that environment. Um, and, and granted, we we kind of already knew some of those characters before from, you know, pre age of X-Men in, in uh, the pages of, of the uncanny X-Men. But, you know, we know some of these characters as well. You know, we know Chupacabra, we know Stitch. Um, so it, it's the same boat. So I, I agree with you a little too soon for, for this, how successful it is. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, Maybe if we get a little more character work in the next issue, uh, Tim Sheridan can kind of turn around. It's not a it's not a bad comic by any stretch. Um, you know, technically it's it's very well put together. Uh, I agree with Rocky that Rafa Sandoval is a, a, a superstar in the making. Uh, absolutely amazing art, great transitions. Um, when we do get little character moments, oftentimes it's to his credit, um, giving. Uh, the reactions between uh, or interactions between two characters, the color work is done very, very well also. So great line work. Uh, I was happy to see him back on the book. Um, And so, yeah, it it does have potential, uh, which, you know, the teen Titans future state had potential. We felt it was a little overstuffed with story and, and teen Titans Academy title has surprised us a little bit with what Tim Sheridan has, has given us. I think it's almost like he's worried that at any moment he's going to be taken off the book. So, you know, pedal to the metal and, and just go as fast as I can in terms of pacing. Cause at any time they could tell me, Hey, that was your last issue. Um, I'd rather they tell him, Hey, we're going to give you, you know, 20 issues or 18 issues or whatever it is guaranteed. And then we'll reassess at that point. So he can give his, Stories, a little more room to breathe because I think that's what they need. Just a little more context in terms of, of character, and who these uh, heroes are and why they're doing what they're doing. Why are they at Teen Titans Academy? Why do they want to ah, be heroes ah, and that sort of thing? So uh, a, little, a little frustrating, but overall, I think it, it's still a, a comic that's worth picking up because the potential is there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Infinite... Frontier, number five. This is from writer uh, Joshua Williamson. We have Paul Pelletier, Jesus Moreno, and Tom Dernick on pencils. Norm Ratman, Raul Fernandez, and Dernick on inks. Hi-Fi does the colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. And uh, I I thought this was a monthly book. And then I thought, well, maybe it's, it's weekly or biweekly. And then, like, we're getting number five, this week. And then I think number six comes out the very next week. So I have no idea on the schedule. We've talked about it before. Uh, we've talked about, uh, I think when issue four came out, there's no way they can wrap this all up in two issues. They don't spoiler alert, because it's already been announced that the <laughs> kind of the next chunk of story for infinite frontier is in another six issue mini that's coming called justice league incarnate, which again, I'm going to say what I said before, just, if you are gonna do that, just make Infinite Frontier a twelve issue mini, and if you want to put it out, you know, twice a month or whatever, do what you need to do. I just don't understand the con. Like, if it's all the same story, why are you splitting it up into uh, into different series? Like, I know the answer; it's so you can get another number one issue out there on the racks. Um, but just give me a good story. Forget about the you know false bump in sales that you get from uh, a number one. So that that kind of bugs me, but. Uh, in terms of the story itself, what did you think, Rocky?
1: I really enjoyed this man. Joshua Williamson is impressing the hell out of me, and I know uh, we we joke about it before. You always tease me because I've I've been pretty hard on Joshua Williamson in the past, but I'm enjoying. You know, he seems to be doing a decent job on Robin. I'm having fun with Robin, uh, despite some hiccups. And boy, his Infinite Frontier! I'm really enjoying this. Uh, I love the story that's building here. What, what I think Joshua Williamson is doing arguably even better at times than even Jeff Johns did in the, in Infinite Crisis dare i say it is that i feel that this is a character driven uh tale leading to the next crisis that is going to hit us in in the in next year in 2022 this uh this is it's establishing what Darkseid's plan here is. Darkseid has made an offer. Darkseid has cre- has it's revealed in this issue that Darkseid has created a team that consists of Psycho-Pirate, Director Bones, Machine Head, Magog, Extract, Fate, Doctor Savannah, Superwoman. Uh he's cre- and uh, and even the Cameron Chase of Earth 2. Uh, he's created this team and he's promised them that look. His argument is very simple. Darkseid has said, "Look, Earth Zero, Earth-designate Zero, always gets the, 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 the best end of things. out all this crises, we had the original crisis in Infinite Earths, we had Infinite Crisis, we had Final Crisis, we have Convergence, we have all these crazy crises. And the the, the Earth that always seems to do so well is Earth-designate Zero, Earth Zero. Well, you know what? Darkseid is basically telling, he he's recruiting people from all over the multiverse, heroes and villains, saying, look, the real, the real villain here is Earth Zero. (laughs) They're the ones that seem to cause the problem. And, in a twisted kind of way, he's not entirely wrong. It does seem to be, (laughs) Earth Zero does, does seem to cause all this havoc. And, uh, Also, what's interesting here, we get some major revelations in this issue, major revelations, and that is that some people have residual multiversal energies stored inside them that can be exploited, and Darkseid wants to exploit that, and he makes no bones about it, and 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 he tells all the people that are working for him, Director Bones, Machine Head, Psycho Pirate, Magog, all of them, you know, he wants to exploit those energies, but he said, look, Let me do whatever I want. I want to crack the multiversal wall. Let me do whatever I want. I promise you, I will leave your Earths alone. If you just let me do what I want to do, you can live peacefully and you can take my word for it. Now, leaving aside that perhaps you might say, who on their right mind would trust Darkseid? Which I think that's legitimate criticism. I think a lot of these people are, are crazy for trusting Darkseid. But when you put Darkseid against the multiversal threats that they face, like the Batman Who Laughs and and the cosmic gods doing what they want, is Dark Side really that much worse? I mean is at least that's that's the argument and you can you know, you can uh, the mileage on that argument will vary according from reader to reader, but I like the fact here that, that Darkseid is playing this game. Joshua Williamson has done a good job here establishing what this is. And it's not altogether that complicated. This is simply Darkseid's plan is to use Barry Allen to crack open the multiverse and have access to what lies beyond and control all the worlds in the multiverse. And what happens in this issue is that Justice League Incarnate ends up being, uh, attacking the Injustice Incarnate along uh, and the Justice Society is along for the ride. Uh President Superman ends up fighting Machine Head. Uh, there's multiple revelations here. Uh, uh, the, of course, we got Roy Harper as the Black Lantern, who ha- who plays a special role in all of this, because uh, Black Lantern is actually, Darkseid reveals that he wants Roy Harper to be his Omega Lantern. And that's what's particularly interesting. And it's revealed that, when when Flashpoint happened, one of the most beloved storylines in DC, which was written by Jeff Johns, is the Flashpoint uh, storyline. And of course, we had that uh, famous, that great DC cartoon, Flashpoint Paradox. It's revealed here that, that the Flashpoint, that caused ripples not only on Earth-0, but throughout the multiverse. And it actually had, it had very negative effects on Earth-8, for example... Earth-8 is almost like the Marvel version of the DC Universe, and it made Earth-8 a lot more darker, and it caused a lot of uh, negative effects. And uh, that that's interesting that Flashpoint had that impact. So Flashpoint didn't just lead to the New 52, it caused chaos all over the place. Another revelation is that Machine Head is revealed as the person who killed Earth-23 Lex Luthor, and... um apparently the earth 23 lex luthor president superman that's calvin alice's lex luthor was killed by machine head because even lex luthor of earth 23 questioned dark side's logic and questioned the 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 decision to go along with dark side and another revelation is that machine head is the one who called upon to to he he's the one who dragged Flashpoint Batman into into the scenario because he wants to punish and torture Flashpoint Batman for Flashpoint. I mean, the the hero villain connection to the multiverse, the multiverse's powers. Uh, it's it's that all the heroes and villains who are on Earth Omega because remember that their ships crash landed, their, their their multiversal bleed starships. They ended up crash landing on Earth Omega. And all these heroes who the heroes and villains in this story that are on Earth Omega, they've got multiversal energies built up in them. And that feeds Earth Omega, which helps create a prison world. And it creates chains that that bind the world. And so there's no more travel or connection between the worlds unless Side says so. Darkseid is controlling it because of all these chains that are being created. As a result of all these multiversal energies being channeled through the Flash as he breaks the barrier, allowing these chains to form, originating from Earth Omega, so that Darkseid can control the traveling between the universes, and that's what that's what that's what Darkseid wants to do, and the multiversal barriers that are created, Roy Harper's the Omega Lantern, and it's through, it's powered by his suffering. (laughs) So, while somebody like Hal Jordan, it's his fearlessness that powers the Green Lantern Ring, when it comes to the Black Lantern, the Omega Lantern, it's actually powered by Roy Harper's suffering. And there's a great scene here where Roy Harper stands up to Psycho Pirate, and he, he finds out through Psycho Pirate that Leon, his daughter, is still alive. And... He doesn't, you know. He sacrifices his life. He's Roy Harper is prepared to basically kill himself to give the other heroes a chance because he doesn't want to become one of Darkseid's puppets. And so he says he's got more than enough power, and he and he's willing to endure the suffering if it means that his if his daughter's still alive on Earth Zero. He doesn't want to become a puppet to Darkseid, and he's willing to sacrifice himself. But before he can do that, uh, you know, Darkseid makes an appearance. And he's got he's got Roy Harper, his Omega Lantern, wrapped in chains. And it's just, man, I love this issue. I'm so looking forward to this. Uh, of course, you and I have already read uh, uh, Issues 6, which comes out after this. I'm not going to ruin it and spoil it for anybody here. Uh, but, man, things are going to look fantastic uh, going into the summer of 2022, man. I'm so excited for this. I I give full props to Joshua Williamson. I'm so excited for where this is headed. And man, I I don't know, man. It's, tell me you're as excited as I am, Jace.
0: I'm I'm not. Glad that you are. <laughs> like I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um there there I mean there's a lot of good here, but I I just it's not it's not resonating for me as much as it, as it is for you. And part of that probably has to do with like I was talking about the story structure, the way they're setting it up. And, and I, I've just flipped through this issue a couple of times because I've already read issue six and I wanted to make sure I don't talk about... There's a couple of things that are in issue six that are really cool um, that I appreciate but I don't want to spoil them here, obviously. Um, so I, I did enjoy this. I am very curious to see how the story shifts and, and you know, now it's Justice League Incarnate and, and they're going to be the focus for the next uh, issue or for the next series rather, and, and how the story continues. But what with what happens in issue six, it feels like it's going to have a bit of a different tone. And I just don't know that that works for me. This is all the same story. Everything Joshua Williamson has been doing since he st- sort of started being the showrunner for whatever reason over there at DC Um it's all one big story. So just put it in one big series. And it, it, I, I, again, I just find it so interesting because even Williamson himself, you know, he he was in that same boat as Tynan, right? Like they pitched stuff for 5G. None of it really resonated with Didio or who was ever making the, the choice for 5G. And, and Tynan and, and Williamson both thought they were going to be just doing creator-owned stuff or maybe go over to Marvel or do something else. They didn't think they were going to have any DC work at all. And it went from that to all of a sudden... Tynan being the driving force behind Batman and Williamson being the driving force behind everything else practically, uh, at least in the main DC universe. So, you know, we can argue about whether h- how successful it's been, if it's worked or not with everything they've tried to shoehorn in with repurposing 5g stories as future state and, you know, bringing in a lot of new blood and new talent. And they seem to have gotten their, their footing and a lot of the stories that are coming out from them are, are good. Um, some of them are great, uh, but is this working for me hundred percent? No, it's it's not, and and part of the reason I think is just a difference in, in style. Like if we go back and we look at things like Crisis on Infinite Earths, Infinite Crisis, uh, even Final Crisis to some extent, even though that was written by Grant Morrison, and we always know his stuff's you know, like, you know out there like Pluto, but especially Infinite Crisis, Jeff Johns, um, Crisis on Infinite Earths. With uh you know Wolfman handling a, a lot of that, George Perez art, um, they were so rooted into the fabric of the d c universe, the characters, the history, um, and despite them being giant events, especially Crisis on Infinite Earth, it really was paced pretty well, considering the breadth of that story. It's why, in my mind, it's still kind of the gold standard for you know a big summer blockbuster. of a a comic event. And granted, it it had tons of crossovers to kind of flesh it out and make it feel like a more coherent story. But I never felt like at any time that I've read it, and at this point, I've probably read it, I don't know, 15, 20 times, it never felt choppy. I never felt like I was missing chunks of the story. Fast forward all these years later to... Uh, who's been running the big events most recently, Scott Snyder, who, you know, I I love Scott. I think he's incredible, uh, incredibly talented. He's a great writer, great guy. Um, But what he did on justice league felt choppy. What he did on um, DC dark Knight's Metal. metal felt choppy. What he did on death metal felt very choppy. It felt like we didn't get the whole story and, you know, knowing Scott the way that I do and knowing how his mind works uh, to some extent and, and these big ideas that he has, it comes down to bandwidth, right? What can be drawn on the page in this amount of time? How many pages do you have to actually tell the story? And him having to leave things on the cutting room floor because there's just not room for it. And now I feel like to some extent, Joshua Williamson is falling into the same trap. But to make it even worse, we're not even putting it all in one title. You know, I, I hate to keep beating that horse, but if this is all the infinite frontier story, then just put it in the infinite frontier book. And if you don't know how many issues it's going to take, then don't even say it's a limited series. Just make it take as long as it's going to take. Yeah.
1: Um. Well, we, we know that this is, but, this is much, this is a much longer story than that. This is, we know that it's going to, yes, mean, it's, yes. It's,
0: I, yes. Yeah. That, but that's my point. The fact that we're going from this infinite frontier story to now Justice League Incarnate, which is the same story, but with a slightly different focus and from different perspective. And then we're gonna have another story, another mini series after that. If this is that big of a story, then just put it all in one thing, you know? And I know DC doesn't exactly have patience right now and they also don't have the bandwidth because honestly, it feels like the scope of this story, what needs to happen, this needs to be a story like 52 or Countdown or something like that where it's a weekly series and you have multiple writers and you have multiple artists and we get a chunk of the story every week. And there's a bunch of different storylines because that's what it's been, right? Like this is yeah. the first issue, issue five of Infinite Frontiers, the first time I'm reviewing one of these issues and I'm not saying, well, there's all these disparate storylines and they haven't come together yet. Everything has come together now and, and everything is is together in issue six as well. Does it split back out in Justice League Incarnate? I, I have no idea. I haven't read any of that yet, but I think so. I think that's likely. So they probably didn't have the time, and obviously, with all the shifting uh, personnel and shifting priorities and editorial decisions and whatnot, they couldn't plan it out the way they did with Fifty Two, or with um, with Countdown, or with Batman Eternal, or any of the other uh, weekly series that DC's done, you know, in the past five or ten years, where They plan those things like a year ahead of time, right? And they had X amount of issues already in the can. And then you do something like Batman Eternal where you you spend a whole year releasing one issue each week. If Williamson had gotten to do that, I think this would be much more successful. For me, it just feels like there are things that we as readers and fans need to know that are slipping through the cracks. And the less you know about DC history, the more... Uh, kind of lost you're gonna feel. Are there good concepts? A hundred percent. And some of those great ideas are coming in issue six. Am I curious what happens? I'm very curious what happens, and I'm even more curious what the end game is. Like what comes next? We've already been told that this I think that I think I read or heard Williamson say that there's basically three mini series that then lead into a big event. So Infinite Crisis is the first, Justice League Incarnate is the second, then we'll get a third, probably another six issue and then it's going to lead into DC's next big event, which we know is going to have crisis in the title. And that may be the thing that, if anything can, that will bring Alfred back. Or if they do decide to de-age Jonathan Kent, or maybe dial back on the multiverse of multiverses. Um, But that'll be the next big thing, right? The, the thing that that is the next publishing initiative after Infinite Frontier will come out of whatever crisis comes comes next so i agree with you there's cool ideas here um but again it just feels like dc's biting off a little bit more than it can chew not because they haven't been able to do this successfully in the past but just because of the sort of limitations of personnel and the timing that kind of you know launched into this maybe a little prematurely probably without really a choice because you had to do something you had to have some kind of Uh, noise coming out of future state, some kind of publishing initiative, some kind of branding. Um, And so they, they just had to kick this off, but it it feels in a little way, it feels a little bit rushed and like some things are slipping through the cracks. And I, and I'll say the same thing about the art because every one of these artists is a talented artist, but you know, that it's not, you know, divided up in any way that necessarily makes sense. It's just like, you know, you draw this page and you draw this page and you draw this page um and it, it ends up feeling it doesn't feel clean it doesn't feel like i'm it doesn't get me excited when i look at this art you know paul Pelletier and jesus moreno are especially i'm a big fan of both of those guys but this art is not up to their their usual standards so um so i think it's good not great i'm i'm more excited about what it bodes for the future than what's actually being told here I, like honestly my my favorite thing about Infinite Frontier is seeing some characters we haven't seen in a long time, like Lady Quark. And then there's somebody that's coming in issue six that we haven't seen in a really long time either. It's been teased in various uh, various comic book websites that that, somebody's, uh, that there's a certain Crisis character that's coming back. So that's been the coolest thing, seeing some of these characters. And seeing the new design of Psycho Pirate is really, really cool. I really, really like the way he looks. And also we, we see Director Bones um, back in the old Todd McFarlane design. <laughs> he uh, loves uh, it, yeah. Yeah. When he was, when he was Mr. Bones instead of, uh, director Bones. So, so yeah, I'm not quite as excited as you are. Um, but I will admit after reading issue six, that infinite frontier is, is, is as good, if not slightly better than I expected after reading the first couple of issues. I'm very yeah, curious I, to see. I, what, I, I can't to see wait what
1: to talk about happened. issue six.
0: Yeah, very curious to see what happens in Justice League Incarnate number one. Like I said, if it's a if it's a big shift in focus. So, uh, all right, up next we have the Harley Quinn Annual 2021, from uh, Stephanie Phillips. Art is by David Lafuente, Marco Faia, and John Samarva. Colors by Miguel Muerto. Colors or letters rather by Andrew Design. I don't really have much to say here. Um, it's a lot of a lot, a lot of uh, Harley Quinn and a lot of um, the new character that we saw in, in Harley Quinn um, recently keepsake um, who we, we find out has some, some history with Harley. I thought this was okay. Uh, Probably the most interesting aspect for me of this was this, made me appreciate Riley Rosmo's art more on uh, Harley Quinn. And, and not because I think this art here is bad. I think this art is, is fine. And it's clearly a much cleaner style than what Rosmo does, but I don't feel that it necessarily told the story any better than, than Rosmo's art. It's not worse than Rosmo's art in terms of, of telling the story, but Rosmo's art tells the, the Harley Quinn stories that Phillips, Stephanie Phillips is writing just as well as this art. So I guess in that way, it's a, uh, Kind of a a backwards compliment um, for Rosmo, in that I think his art is is just is just as good on Harley Quinn as as this art is. So, uh, but yeah, that's really all I have to say. Um, it, it was nice to look at uh, in terms of the colors. I think the color is probably my favorite part of the art work. Um, and, and Stephanie Phillips definitely continues to find her her Harley voice. She does a, a great job. Harley feels very authentic in her, uh, in her hands. So, uh, what did you think Rocky?
1: Well, I think that, uh, this is, uh, Stephanie, writer Stephanie Phillips is focusing on a new villain for, for Harley called keepsake. And I will say that one of the reasons why I, I was trying to figure out what, what was, what was a little bit off about Stephanie's approach. That was, uh, that was just eating at me a little bit. And I, and it it occurred to me that the reason one of the things that th- sort of threw me off is that this is that it, this is taking place during the the build up to future state, and the only thing that seems a little bit off to me is her when she writes Harley Quinn, Harley is not looking for poison ivy as as. Diligently as I would expect her to, and in fact, she never even did that last issue. Or there was a we reviewed Harley Quinn number six just last week, and she and she was with Catwoman, and and Catwoman even knows where uh, Poison Ivy is because Poison Ivy is in two halves right now. And um, I I think that uh, Stephanie Phillips has the has the unenviable task of trying to to write Harley Quinn uh, in a very humorous comedic way in her own title but yet the harley quinn that's that's being written and uh, and being involved in the build-up to future Street, facing the magistrate she's very much in love with poison ivy and is supposed to be looking for poison ivy and i think in the juggling of that it's 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 part of me it's i find it hard to reconcile this this joking poison ivy in this in this annual who is you know trying to take down keepsake and and um but it just seems a little bit uh seems a little bit jarring to me. Now, having said that, this is entertaining. Uh it's it's a little bit tropey, I think. This keepsake is basically used to this keepsake is obsessed with Harley. This he used to be obsessed with the Joker, and he was jealous of Harley, and uh he because Harley was always the focus of the Joker's attention when he wanted to be the focus of the Joker's attention. And uh there's some funny moments here. Harley thinks that one when, when she first meets uh uh, keepsake, you know, he says his real name is Eli Kaufman. And, you know, and, and she, she, of course, she doesn't recognize him. She thinks that he looks like a, like a, like a flasher that you'd see on a street. And, you know, uh, he's just, he, he does seem to be very obsessed and, but keepsake thinks that Harley owes him an apology. Meanwhile, Kevin is going through all of, uh, essentially going through Batman's rogues gallery, Trying to find somebody to help him find, uh, trying to help him find uh, Harley, and so uh, it, it ends up that uh, you know Kevin uh, talks to the Penguin, he talks to Cheshire, Harvey Dent, the Riddler, Firefly, uh, and all trying to find out you know where this uh, you know where Keepsake might be, and ultimately he finally locates Keepsake, you know. Mr Freeze finally helps him and and we 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 get we get a very interesting side of Kevin here because Kevin at one point actually freaks out on Mr Freeze and he shows his more psychotic side and uh ultimately he ends up locating uh, Harley Uh, Because Keepsake takes Harley out for dinner and wants to sweet talk her and sort of recruit her to his cause. He wants Harley to be his sidekick, which is kind of ironic because Harley wants to be Batman's new sidekick or slash partner. And so I think there's some analogies there uh, between between maybe, you know, Harley's desire to maybe be more respected by Batman. Keepsake wants to, you almost get a sense that Keepsake wants some respect from Harley. Uh... Vis-a-vis their, their past affiliation with the Joker. But in any event, it, it, it obviously doesn't work out. Uh, Keepsake ultimately ends up being, ends up being defeated. And I got to say this, this was all, this was a long issue. I, I, you know, there were some interesting sort of character moments, uh, I felt this was a little bit long. I thought it dragged on. It was basically Kevin just going on almost like a treasure hunt through Batman's rogues gallery, trying to find Harley while Harley's having these humorous anecdotes or, uh, you know, these conversations with keepsake. And I, it's, it's not bad. I would have, I actually would have preferred, I would have preferred a little bit more focus on maybe I wish Harley would mention, would have mentioned, you know, poison Ivy a little bit more, uh, uh, as opposed more so than she did. But it's all good. It's interesting to see how Kevin reacts. And uh, again, I think that Kevin has a psychotic side that is maybe a sign of things to come. <laughs> because he's a seemingly polite, fat, overweight guy who's hardly a sidekick. But he clearly, I mean, he's got this giant K on his uh, shirt. And he definitely has, I mean, he threatened to to kill Mr. Freeze slowly if he didn't help him out. And in any event, it was it was okay. Uh, I actually uh, one one commentator I note online made the comment that I it'd be nice to see more mainstream artists try to draw Kevin because Kevin's got that weird tattoo under his double chin there. It'd be nice to see how uh, how more uh, more mainstream artists would uh, would draw Kevin. But overall, I thought that the I thought this was um, this was okay. I again I, I want Harley to I want Stephanie Phillips to. I I think she shines more in the relationship. I think she knows Harley's character better than this story would reflect. And I want, I'm looking forward to Stephanie Phillips, maybe script um, uh, Harley finding Poison Ivy and scripting that relationship. I'd be really curious to see how she approaches that moving forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we'll get that in, or we're supposed to be getting that in, uh, in fear state. So I guess if you're looking forward to that, look there. But yeah, this definitely, it could have been called kevin you know 2021 yeah. <laughs> annual because it really was a kevin story not not a harley story so uh all right let's move on to the last book we're going to talk about uh, in this episode and then there will be everybody there we are going to cover the aquaman 80th anniversary but since there's 10 stories in that we're going to do it as its own uh episode uh but the last book we're going to talk about here is batman superman annual 2021 so this is from writer gene Lewin yang and it's a flip book which definitely works better. Speaking of physical versus digital, it works way better uh, in in physical form as opposed to in digital. Um, so, there's two stories: there's Batman and Robin in the world of tomorrow, and then there's Superman in uh, in basically the Gotham City world. So, the the two characters have sort of switched places: uh, Superman in the world of night, uh, if you will. So, the, the characters that Jean that Luang created, Jean Yang created for his um for his archive of of world storylines they've they've decided to swap and they they even discuss it in the story how they feel like the various villains that they are going to have to go up again they would be better off switching worlds uh, at least until the villains are taken care of so the superman in the world of night is also written by gene luen yang but the art on in that story is by francesco francovia and the colors are by him as well with letters by troy petrie and then uh, the uh, the Batman and Robin in the World of Tomorrow, also written by Gene Luen Yang, but we have Paul Pelletier handling the pencils, Mick Gray on inks, Hi-Fi on colors, and Troy Petrie does the letters for that side. Um, I know it's a flip book, and that does help to sort of mitigate this somewhat, but these are two completely different art styles. And uh, Franco Villa is, is a fantastic artist, and his stuff is especially good in horror and kind of moody and darker stories. Um, this clearly is not that right. This is a superhero story. And you would think based on the fact that he did a, a um, did the art in a Joker issue recently with James teamed up with James Tynion and the writer um, hmm. that they would have given him the Batman and Robin side of it, but maybe because it's the world of tomorrow and that needs a more clean style. I, I, like, I don't know. Paul Pelletier's art is just so, the line work is so much more fine. There's so many more details. So I, I thought it was an odd choice. I thought Frank Villa was a, was an odd choice. And again, this is not to say that I don't think Frank Villa is a fantastic artist because he is supremely talented. And I love his art uh, in things like, um, was Afterlife with Archie? Uh, and the, the Jughead howling, or, or Jughead's a werewolf, whatever, like, that is the perfect type of story for Frank Villa to be drawing. A Superman story, on the other hand, eh, not quite so much. Um, but, you know, not to disparage his work at all because he is a fantastic storyteller and his transitions from panel to panel, his sense of storytelling, the angles that he uses, um, you know, camera zooming in and out. All, all of that is perfect, but he does have a very heavy line. And it does make his art feel a little bit static at times. It doesn't flow. Doesn't have that sort of kinetic energy that you necessarily would want in a in a superhero comic. As opposed to Paul Pelletier, who's much more in the the DC House style, right? Really fine lines, um, a lot of detail in in uh, the background, a lot of textures, like very much in that sort of Jim Lee uh, style. As far well, as the it, story, it's more be- reminiscent
1: of Ivan Rees, which was he yeah, started yeah. off the.
0: Yep. Yep. All the issues yeah, and, and again, you could say Ivan Reese uh, heavily influenced by by Jim Lee as well. As far as the stories, they're fine. Um, nothing to write home about. I, I, I feel like that archive of the world story is was very inspired and was a lot of fun. This feels a little extraneous. Like doesn't really feel necessary, but it does capture the same feel of fun that the archive of world storyline had. Um, and, I, you know, Rocky and I were talking before we started recording. Curious how they're going to collect all this, right? Like, we know we're getting seven issues of Batman Superman. We're already done with the Archive of World storyline. So now we're getting a standalone Calendar Man storyline. But then we have this uh, annual that ties into the Archive of World storyline as well. So are we going to get eight issues collected in the the latest Batman Superman trade? And really the equivalent of nine, since this is an annual and it's double sized, double the pages. I I mean, I have no idea. I haven't seen it solicited yet. Um, But all that being said, again, I did think this worked pretty well. If I had to pick between the two stories, I did like the Batman Robin story more, but I couldn't really say if if that's just because I, I like the art style better. It's just more my cup of tea. I sort of feel like that's why. And if you swapped the art, teams i i might end up liking the superman story more uh, but ultimately i thought they were both good they both worked um and they sure like rocky said they sure didn't take a very big break between archive io stories we just barely finished it last week and now we've already got an, another book that's set in that world so uh but ultimately i enjoyed it what did you think rocky
1: yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I'm a big fan of Franco Francavilla. His art, I really like it. I actually, I slightly preferred the his his darker version and his artistic sensibilities in the first story, only because I do have a slight bias. I do like his art. I loved his art on Joker number five, and I actually liked I actually liked the story because I, I liked that the hint of of the romance between Superman and. Lois Lane or who was the spider lady uh in in, in Gotham. So I kind of like that angle and I kind of like seeing Superman interact with uh Commissioner Gordon, you know. And and just to see Frank Avilla's style with him using the film strip, it's obviously the line work is totally different. But it does seem to have that, uh, have a, its own sense of artistic style as well with heavier line work. And remembering, of course, that we're talking about the archive of worlds where there's different worlds, there's nothing to say that you can't have those uh, divergent artistic styles and that it, it, it you know, I, I think it can work. Uh, admittedly, it is a it is an artistic shift that is significantly different than those first seven issues from Batman Superman issues sixteen through twenty one, where we got predominantly mostly Ivan Reese's, uh artistic sensibilities and his style. So this Frank Avila st- this does stand out a bit in that regard. But uh, again, I enjoyed it and. I do think that I can't believe I'm saying this. This almost feels like we're getting too much of a good thing because you and I both talked about how much we love just just the whole approach with the with the film strip and cutting into the different realities and the universes through the metaphor and through the symbolism of the, of the film strip and and even at the end of the of issue I think it was, it was 21 that we reviewed I think it was last week where you know. Darkseid himself is going to be, you know, perhaps utilizing the archive of worlds moving forward as a way to sort of infiltrate different aspects of the of the omniverse. And so it's it's a great idea. Uh, but I think that if there's it's an odd criticism and maybe it's an unfair one. But it is an odd criticism for me to say that maybe we got too much of a good thing, <laughs> by Gene, Lu and Yang. Sometimes it's better to just give us, you know, maybe four or five issues would have been suffice, and then come back at a later date. But uh, you know, it's you know, look, th- this is a as complaints go, I'm not. This isn't really a complaint. It's more of an uh, maybe an uh, an underhanded compliment is what I'm what I'm doing. <laughs> but yeah,
0: overall, yeah, pretty I, good. I, yeah, I think that again that that sort of thicker line that that Frank Villa uses like when you look at the borders for the film strip, it doesn't look quite as good when he draws it as when Pelletier draws it or, um, or Yvonne Reese. Um, but again, it's just a, a difference in style. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for, uh, for this episode. Uh, like I said, everybody there, uh, there is an Aquaman 100 page, uh, 80th anniversary. Um, issue that we're going to cover in a, in a separate, um, episode, just because, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's 10 stories. It's almost a, a full episode in and of itself. So we want to be sure that we, uh, that we give it its due and, um, everybody has a chance to, uh, to check it out. There's a, there's a couple of trade paperbacks that are coming out this week as well. Uh, there's a Batman adventures, cat got your tongue trade paperback that's coming out. There's a Batman year zero trade paperback. Uh, The Titting Stands, uh, Swamp Things, uh, New Roots, Uh, Trade Paperback is also uh, out this week. And I thought there was one. Uh, Oh, there's uh, the Preacher 20th Anniversary Omnibus Volume 2 hardcover. If you're a big Preacher fan, you might want to check that out. So uh, a few different hardcovers out from uh, from DC this week. Um, And for me, again, I'm still just trying to get caught up. Um, No, day job has been absolutely insane. I don't even have any creator owned, uh, interviews. Uh, people have been reaching out and I've just been telling them, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. I don't even have any creator owned spotlights coming this week, at least not as of yet. That could always change at, uh, at any moment. So, uh, what about you, Rocky, you have anything coming up that you want to tease?
1: Uh, well, I, i I decided I'm going to wait, uh, till, uh, infinite crisis number six before I do all my, my, my infinite Infinite front, pardon me. Infinite front frontier review. I think I'm going to wait on that. But in in the meantime, no, I'm probably no, just going to relax and uh, I I'm, I might do a couple of uh, cover videos, speculation videos. But I, I just like you, I, it's hard to find the time right now, and uh, you know, work is quite busy. You know, and and it actually takes time for me. I, I try to prepare as best I can when we do these reviews because, me and I mean, I you know, my memory's not what it used to be. I got to, I got to take notes when I, when I just, when I talk these comics with you, I just can't remember off the top of my head, man. I I don't know how you do it, but I, I need to, I need to take notes. And when I don't, I get, I get all flustered and uh, sometimes I'm sure I, I feel like I sound like a rambling moron, but uh, it's a, it's a, it's a cross I'll have to bear.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, in no way do I want to blame it on DC comics, but the fact that we've I've only been putting out creator own stuff and then DC spotlight and the new comics Wednesday for a couple months now, just because DC is putting out so much output, it, you know, it it takes me three times as long to read it used to take me an hour and I was done with all the DC books for the week. And now it takes me like three hours. So it cuts into time to read other things and, and talk about other things, but definitely hoping to get back to it uh, at some point. Uh, Cause I know you guys miss the, the Marvel chronology and the star Wars stuff. And um you know, the, the X-Men episodes and all that. So hopefully we'll, we'll get there at some point. But uh, all that being said, don't forget, everybody, if you're listening to us on the podcast, head over to YouTube. Look for the Comic Boom uh, YouTube channel. You can find it in the show notes on the, uh, the page as well. Uh, make sure you subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Boom with an exclamation point. Uh, give this video a like. Ring that notification bell so you know whenever there's new content coming out. Uh, conversely, if you're listening, uh, to us or watching us on YouTube and you haven't already subscribed to the comic source, YouTube or uh, podcast, rather whatever podcast app you use, you can go and subscribe. Um, you know, it'll, it'll be there directly in your RSS feed on your podcast app or Google Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, whatever you listen to your podcasts on, we're on every platform. So we appreciate the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. See you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also, be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content.